0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Parenting isn't easy, but showing up is, and your greatest impact begins right where you are. One of the best scientific predictors for how any child turns out in terms of happiness, academic success, leadership skills, and meaningful relationships is whether at least one adult in their life has consistently shown up for them. In an age of scheduling demands and digital distractions, showing up for your child might sound like a tall order, but now Drs. Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson, the best-selling authors of The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, explain that it doesn't take a lot of time, energy, or money, and the simple quality of presence can transform a child's life. It's all in their new book titled The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. And today they join me on the show to offer this soon-to-be first-time father some much-needed advice on parenting. They explain what it means to really show up for your children and how your interactions with your kids are shaping the course of their lives and literally altering their physical brain. They discuss the latest discoveries in attachment science, some tips for encouraging the baby scientist in your kid, and why sometimes with children it's best to answer a question with another question. Plus, we talk about the perils of hyperparenting, the difference between soothing a child and coddling them, and how even people who experienced neglect and abuse from their own parents can break the cycle for the next generation. Coming up with Daniel Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson in just a moment. Daniel J. Siegel, M.D., is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, the founding co-director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and the executive director of the MindSight Institute. Tina Payne Bryson, Ph.D., is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice, and of the PlayStrong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. Tina and Dan are the co-authors of the best-selling books, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and The Yes Brain. And now they're out with their latest book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become, and How Their Brains Get Wired. Dan and Tina, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having us. It's
0: a pleasure to be here. I kind of feel like I have to warn you here. This might be part interview and part therapy session for me because, <laughs> as I mentioned before we went on air, my wife and I are expecting our first child, February 22nd, coming right up. And I've read books. I've listened to podcasts. I've watched videos. I've gone to classes. I've done all this stuff, and yet I still feel like I have no idea what's in store for me. And, uh, you know, my rational brain— says, okay, I know that this is this is not an uncommon feeling for new parents or probably any kind of parent, no matter how long they're at it. And yet it's still there and it still has to be dealt with. So help me out here. Hey, does that nagging feeling ever go away? And how does a parent cope with it?
2: Well, first of all, congratulations on your upcoming <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> birth as a set of parents. uh, And it is always there, that feeling like, oh, what's it going to be like? How can it be better? And I think what Tina and I really wanted to do in writing all of these books, but especially the power of showing up, was to give parents what is the essence of what we need to do as parents. And it actually is based on science, and it's very practical. And we can get into the details of it, but the idea that showing up for your kid is what they really need to thrive, is what this Mm -hmm. approach is all about.
0: Yeah, I think that you say in here that if you're doubting yourself and if you're worrying a lot, then you're probably doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Although, of course, you can probably overdo it, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Definitely, you can overdo it. And that's actually one of the things that's so exciting about what this science says, is that as parents, we worry. And it it really doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. You know, I have three um, adolescent boys, and... We always are thinking about, are we doing the right thing? Are we, or what are we missing? You know, It's like we worry, are we spending enough time with them? Are we spending too much time with them? Are we, do they have enough activities that are enriching? Do they have too many activities that are enriching? <laughs> right? So we're always kind of wrestling with that tension. But what's great about what the science tells us is that most of the things we worry about as parents are mm. things we can let go Oh, yeah. And you know the the overdoing and hyperparenting that's very much a part of our current culture is actually not what our kids need and the science is clear about that.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. You discuss hyperparenting and hypoparenting. Now, I think I have a grasp of hyperparenting. That's, you know, those parents who just fill a kid's day with activities and have every minute scheduled and no time for free play and that kind of thing. But hypoparenting I'm a little less familiar with. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I think the hyperparenting. you know, for a long time, people have talked about it as helicopter parenting. But I okay. actually think that's way too passive to describe huh. what we actually see. You know, helicopter parenting came from the idea that parents are hovering too much. But I think the current culture is much more intrusive. They're like... Mm. In it, doing it, so it's more like a snowplow parenting or or a curling parenting, where we're sweeping the ice, so there's right. no little bumps, right? We're not just hovering <laughs> and watching; we're intrusively involved. And um, in fact, when we do that, it it can really get in the way of giving our kids practice dealing with challenges mm-hmm. and and learning that they themselves are more uh, resilient than they think. But the hypo parenting, you know, is really the idea where parents are checked out. Mm-hmm. Distracted, okay, um, overcommitted themselves, stretched too thin. You know, it's really hard to parent right now. We don't have the same kinds of familial supports we did in the past. We're doing it often fairly alone, even if we have a partner to co-parent with us. But especially when we don't, we it can be really isolating. But what happens is we it's overwhelming to do parenting, and so we're stretched so thin, and even when that's not the case, our devices and our schedules can really keep us fragmented, Mm -hmm. distracted, and checked out. So that's why this book is so helpful and the science is helpful. It's like For those of us as parents who are involved too much, where we're intrusive and we're doing everything for our kids, the answer is you don't need to do all that. You just need to be present and show up. And then for the parents who are Checked out, distracted, not present to say, hey, your kids really need you to show up.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you guys this. You know, we're living in this age where our devices are just attached to our hands and we have all kinds of influences on our children from social media, Instagram culture, crazy access to things like pornography, you know, at a very young age on the internet, plus global warming and all these things that you have to explain to your kid. Was it easier to parent, maybe? 50, 20 years ago than it is today?
2: You know, it's a great question, Ben. I think the the issue is parenting has always been challenging. It's mm-hmm. probably the hardest job that we can take on. And I don't want to get you nervous because I know you've got a, <laughs> a month and a half before I'm it, there. it comes down. <laughs> so it's a hard job. And yeah. what we want to do as parents in that club is say, okay, well, what is the core – strategy you can take Mm -hmm. so if this were 200 years ago you wouldn't be faced with all those challenges that you're mentioning but you'd have other challenges in fact you know those days you had a sadly a high chance that your child would not make it Mm -hmm. into adolescence so you know we have a lot of wonderful things that are happening now even as there are also challenges so we need to just take a deep breath Mm -hmm. and say okay what what do we know well when you look at the science across cultures It comes down to this very simple notion that the way you as a dad and your partner, your wife as a mom, will communicate with your soon-to-be-born child is going to provide the kind of environment filled with experiences that will allow their brain, that organ in their head, to grow optimally. Now this isn't to put pressure on you, it's just (laughs) to say that when you learn the basics, Mm -hmm. you'll realize you can take a deep breath and relax because the basics which we can go through come down to three fundamental S's that give rise to a fourth S, and if you just like the letter S and can remember (laughs) these S's, you're gonna do just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And those S's are really all about showing up, that's actually in a sense a fifth S, you know, where you want to develop a way of connecting with your child so that you see them you keep them safe you soothe them when they're distressed and they develop when they have that in a reliable way a sense of security Mm -hmm. and when parents really get that and they realize oh my gosh if i didn't have that in my own childhood does that mean my child is doomed to not be able to get it in their childhood and the answer is absolutely no The fact is that even if you had a very challenging childhood without these S's, you can learn to develop this capacity to show up for your child now. And that's why Tina and I wrote this book, is because parents actually can earn security so that they learn these very simple steps to take a deep breath, show up, and your child will thrive and develop things like resilience, things like grit, things like kindness and compassion. And that's a new way of measuring successful parenting, is to have your child have these ways of thriving.
0: And before we get to the four S's, I want to kind of talk about the research that underpins this book. There's something called attachment science. What is attachment science?
2: Well, attachment science is a a branch of the field of psychology that studies child psychology in particular, that studies human development. And it's been around for about 50 years, so half a century. And it has these fantastic ways of systematically studying how the interaction of an adult, the caregiver, usually a parent, with the infant leads to how that infant will be at 12 months of age, at 12 years of age. And even into their 40s, now we have longitudinal <laughs> studies. So this is an amazing collection of research data, and we can tease apart how they do it, but that's basically what attachment science is. It studies how relationships impact the development of the person.
0: Okay. And your new book, as we mentioned, is called The Power of Showing Up. Now, you don't just mean physically showing up to a recital or a baseball game, there's more to it than that, I have to assume. What do you mean by showing up?
1: Yeah, there's more to it for sure. Being physically present is important. Our kids want to see us in the stands at those games at least some of the time. But showing up is really more than just physical presence. It's really about knowing our children and being present in ways where we can see the mind behind their actions and their behaviors mm-hmm. to really know them. And the, the essence of showing up is the idea that when our kids have a need, we see it and respond to it quickly and sensitively, at least most of the time. This this idea of showing up does not mean perfect. In <laughs> fact, we can mess up all the time as parents, the research shows, and as long as we make a repair with our kids, it actually can be really beneficial, and we can talk more about that. But the idea of showing up is the where your child's brain has wired based on repeated relational experiences with you that says, hey, if I need them, they're going to show up for me. I expect that someone's going to see and respond to my needs.
0: And how stark are the differences later in life between adults whose parents did or didn't show up for them when they were children?
2: Well, that's a great question. The, the first thing to say for anyone listening is that if what we're about to describe about the differences um, strikes you take a deep breath and know that the research gives you a very optimistic um, empirical finding that if you didn't have parents show up for you when you were a kid you can do certain steps which Tina and I outlined in the book to actually allow yourself to develop the kind of way of living in a sense the way of being the way of being present so you can show up for your kids so we'll outline these differences but please 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 keep that important research finding in mind that if you say oh my gosh i'm that person that tina and dan are now describing that didn't have someone show up for me and that's the way i am you can if you choose find a way to grow through that and develop a more flexible way of being so basically what happens is if you did have parents who showed up for you you develop what's called a secure attachment and That security is sometimes called a mental model, which is just a fancy term for inside of me, I have a frame, what's called a schema, that you and I can have a relationship that's mutually rewarding. I can be aware of my emotions and what means something to me, and I can share that with you. And in a very open and flexible way, I can engage with you where I've shared what's going on inside of me, you share what's going on inside of you, and we have a very meaningful, rewarding relationship with each other. That is what security is all about, and it basically says not that I'm entitled to be seen and known by you, but that I'm able to be, and I, in a sense, am worthy of that. I feel good about who I am and good about the relationships I can create. That's security. Now, there are various forms of insecurity, and there are three major forms, but the bottom line of each of them is, I don't feel that I need other people and I want to go it alone is one strategy. Or no matter what you do, I'm going to feel really insecure and feel like, wow, you don't really love me. You don't really care about me. I'm not certain this is going to work out. Oh my God, I'm, I'm flooded with my emotions. That's a second kind. And a third kind is if I've had terrifying experiences that I haven't worked through, so it's still unresolved loss or unresolved trauma, then I will have a fragmentation of my mind called dissociation where especially when things get tough, I'm going to have a disconnection with the feelings in my body from my awareness or I might feel like suddenly filled with rage or I might get filled with flashbacks of memories of painful things that happened in the past. So that I can't really show up for you as a friend or if it's my child we're talking about, I can't really show up for them because I'm dissociating. I'm fragmenting Mm -hmm. my mind.
0: And one of the things that I found most fascinating about this is you guys say that the physical brain is actually physiologically altered by our interactions as children. Our actual physical brain changes based on our interpersonal relationships.
1: So that means that as parents or teachers or grandparents or whoever we are influencing spending time with a child, we are brain architects. And that's absolutely yeah, that's true. that's an interesting that, way to think about it. That the kinds of experiences we provide children and even each other in relationship don't just influence the mind or their character or their behaviors, but the actual physical architecture and wiring in that brain. And again… Wow. I know that seems like a lot of pressure, <laughs> Sure. but the science is so relieving in saying, mm-hmm. look, if you show up for your kid when they need you, if you sensitively <laughs> tune into what they need and, and respond, you are building that architecture in really strong, Mm -hmm. positive ways.
0: And I have to say that one of the most exciting things for me, this might sound kind of weird or perverse, but (laughs) about having a baby is the experiment of raising a child (laughs) and seeing how their mind works and what she observes and what she takes to and why she takes to something or doesn't take to something. You guys talk about this idea of the baby scientist in the book. They're just insatiably curious. And sometimes you say that a child might, for instance, throw a plate of spaghetti not to act out but to see what happens because they're curious. Uh, How can parents foster that kind of curiosity and maybe do a little bit better at viewing a child's behavior through that lens of the baby scientist?
2: That's such a great question. You know, um, the idea of curiosity is something parents can really cherish and if they're thinking like you are like how do i keep that alive in my child that child's going to really benefit because sadly when kids get to school many many schools are busy just teaching about here's some information there's a right way to do it there's a wrong way to do it i'm not interested in your curiosity i just want you to know the right answer and don't give me the wrong answer so Hmm. that unfortunately starting around first, second grade, tells kids, I'm not really valued for what I'm asking questions about, I'm only valued for when I can guess the answer.
0: Right, so which is not a valuable life skill. Exactly,
2: <laughs> so as a parent, and this is so beautiful you're thinking about it for your child about to be born, is that you can really focus on questions. Questions allow us to join with a child, So let's say your child is, she's going to be, he, she's going to be three, they're out in a park and they're looking at a bug. You can get down at their level and look at the legs of the bug and and, and she may say to you, "Uh, why does the the bug have six legs and not uh, two like we do? And you go, oh my God, that's a really interesting question. What do you think? Which is very different. That's a set of questions from saying, huh. Oh, well bugs have eight legs, but actually spiders no, what is it? Spiders have eight, <laughs> the other ones have six, whatever it is. <laughs> okay. And you just give an answer. No. Huh. Continue with questions. Interesting. And, and kind the, of
0: developing the Socratic mind exactly there. Exactly. Because yeah.
2: that allows your child to see, my dad really loves that I'm curious. He loves that I ask questions, and together we can explore the nature of reality rather than He's going to download to me like an encyclopedia the final answer, you know? (laughs) So, this is the first thing. The second thing, just to say about it is, you know, you, by asking that question, are showing us that you're really interested in the mind of your child Mm -hmm. because curiosity Mm -hmm. is an inner state of wonder. And that is a part of the mind. And we have a term we use called mind sight. Parents who try to cultivate mind sight in their children by asking questions, not just giving answers by exploring things like, what are you feeling? What are you wondering about? What are you remembering? Those are all aspects of the mind, not just how are you behaving and is it right or wrong behavior, but what's going on inside of you. You join at the level of mind and all the studies are ab- absolutely clear. Parents who have these reflective dialogues reflecting on the nature of mind, they have kids who do better. They become more resilient, more empathic with other people, more insightful. They develop more grit. So they say, wow, that was really tough and I didn't do as well as I should have. Let me try harder. That's what you want your kid to have. And you can cultivate that. Uh, that's so interesting to
0: me because <laughs> the one thing I keep telling myself is that I'm going if they have a question, I'm going to give them a real answer. I'm not going to just make up an answer because I see so many parents, especially with very young kids, you know, they ask a question every 30 seconds and the parents, you know, they're focused on something else and they'll just say, Well, because that's the way it is, or something like that. And I keep telling myself I'm not going to do that. But you're saying I should actually get them to think about it and maybe answer a question with a question, huh?
2: Exactly. And, you know, a lot of us, of course, had curiosity trained out of us. So in a Mm -hmm. way, as you are so beautifully describing it, parenting is an adventure to continue your lifelong learning as an individual. And if you see especially this notion that Tina beautifully mentioned The idea of reconnecting after a break, after a rupture, Mm -hmm. you know, some people call it repair, but repair sometimes has the feeling of like something's broken. But the idea is you reconnect if you aren't seeing your child or keeping them safe or all these other S's. You know, we always mess up as Ed Tronick, the wonderful researcher, beautifully says, you know, relationships are messy. And if you realize that and realize, okay, I get an idea of what the S's are. There's going to be messiness where there's disconnections and I'm not keeping my child safe or I'm not soothing them or not seeing them or all these things. What I do is see these opportunities just like that. Rather than burdens of I did something wrong, you see them as opportunities. Okay. You say, wow, I'm going to now teach my child the skill that I can apologize. I was absent. I wasn't showing up. I can reconnect. And amazingly, it's those mismatches and reconnections that a lot of science suggests are the basis of your child developing resilience. Because what it teaches her is she says, I know there were times when I was a kid when my dad, maybe he got mad, maybe he was distracted on his phone, and I got really upset. And he goes, oh, my God, I shouldn't be on my phone, or I'm sorry, I got mad. And you get down at her level, and you reconnect That gets embedded literally in her brain as a memory. Things can be really tough, but with love and connection, they can get better. Mm -hmm. And now I've learned the mismatch reconnection pattern is something so when things are hard, I don't despair. That's where resilience comes from. I know it's going to be okay because you taught me Uh, that, Dad.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute. Hey folks, technology is constantly changing, and if you have a business like I do, you know all too well that you either change with it or you die. It used to be that a company didn't exist unless it was in the phone book, and then a company didn't exist if it wasn't on the internet. But nowadays, people are spending less time on their computers and more time on their mobile devices, which means it's absolutely essential to have an attractive and easy-to-use mobile app. If you're looking for a product design and development company to help you build your next app, Mutual Mobile is the company for you. Mutual Mobile has designed and built over 600 mobile and web apps powering many Fortune 500 companies and high-growth startups around the world today. Founded over 10 years ago, Mutual Mobile has partnered with Under Armour, Clorox, Alamo Drafthouse, KitchenAid, and more. This company is the best-kept secret of web design and development. Well, at least until now. Now, we all know about the pain of hiring a freelancer or a new employee only to find out months later that it's not a fit, but Mutual Mobile has a refined process so they get it done right the first time. And if you're anything like me, that's precisely what you need. Because what do I know about creating a mobile app or what customers are looking for in that sort of thing? I'm no tech whiz. And who wants to spend all the time and money to build their own team? That's not efficient. But that's exactly why Mutual Mobile is such a lifesaver. Spanning business-to-business, consumer, and industry segments, their teams champion custom digital product management, user experience best practices, visual and interactive design, and integrated technical operational development capabilities. Mutual Mobile's teams work alongside their partners from strategy building to product delivery to create impactful and scalable mobile experiences. If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Mutual Mobile at mutualmobile.link kick to get started. That's mutualmobile.link kick. Hey folks, I am so excited to talk to you about my new sponsor. I've been recommending chili products to friends for years now. They literally changed my life and now I am a true believer. Did you know that one of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation? Chili makes both the Chili Pad and Uler, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the ChiliPad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. I used to get horrible sleep. I'd wake up several times a night hot, sweaty, and frustrated, tossing the comforter off. But then my wife got me what is to this day still the very best birthday gift that I've ever received, a chili pad. And I've slept like a baby ever since because it keeps me cool all through the night. It's not uneven like air conditioning. It cools me right in my immediate space where I sleep. And now my sheets actually hold the cool in rather than making me hot at night. Now, if you, on the other hand, like to sleep warmer, Chili has you covered there too. But for me, there's just nothing like getting nice and cozy when it's chilly. Sometimes I even take my Chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees and I love it. Chili really did change my life for the better. And it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C-H-I-L-I i l slash kick with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code KICK. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the Chili Pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto clean. While the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But ChiliPad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's chili slash KICK with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's ChiliTechnology.com slash KICK and offer code KICK. Warning, high-potency supplements aren't for everyone. But if you're intent on continuous improvement and accomplishing health and wellness goals, then you need to meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These quality vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. No magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide. Zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Visit vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or any of the vitamin shop stores to level up your health routine and show your body some major love with solutions like Active Flex Plus featuring clinically studied ingredients like a Preflex and types 1 and 2 collagen to help fuel healthy joints, tendons, and ligaments and deliver results you can feel. Discover their most advanced formulas, bioactive men's and women's multivitamins, with immune-supporting vitamins C and D plus zinc and everything else to fill in the nutrient gaps. And explore heart-healthy, full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock plus new for 2020, advanced nootropic formula for cognitive function, energy production, and up to five hours of improved alertness. Find them all and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast. That's vitaminshoppe.com forward slash podcast, or visit the vitamin shop store near you. Kids need to feel safe not just from external threats, but you say they need to feel safe from a perceived threat or anger coming from their own parents sometimes. Yet we still have to create boundaries. We still have to discipline our children sometimes. What's the best way to do that without breaking that bond with a kid?
1: So let's be really clear that when we're talking about tuning into our child's mind and having them feel that we're that we care about who they are and mm-hmm. what they're feeling. This is not permissive parenting. So let's be really okay. clear about that from the beginning. And in fact, having boundaries that our children know that you know we've clearly communicated, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, that actually helps them feel safe because it creates predictability. So Hmm. the main piece of safety is first protecting them from harm, right? So that's something that is very instinctual for most parents, right? Like we know we're going to put them in the car seat, the the, the first trip home from the hospital or the first trip out of the house. Um, We really want to protect them from harm. But one of the things that often gets left out is the second piece, which is really important, and that is that we should not be the source of their fear, and their source of their terror. And Dan alluded to this before when he was talking about sort of these one of these insecure styles of attachment. Um, and if you think about this, you know the the drive to be connected and protected is very primal. It's very mm-hmm. much part of even our our mammal sure. brain. Where, you know, I think about like a little bear cub and out in the forest and a predator starts coming toward them or they get hurt or they get scared. Their biological instinct is to run to their attachment figure to make sure that they're safe. So we have this biological drive that says go to your attachment figure to be safe. But if your parent is the source of your fear the source of your terror, it actually creates disorganization in how the brain tries to process that because you have one circuit that says, go to where there is safety, which is supposed to be your caregiver. And you have another circuit that says, get the hell away from what's dangerous. So that that's an important part of that. Now, of course, what we're talking about there is more in terms of abuse and neglect, which is you know very much more common than most people realize. But the second part of that is more micro ways that we might, as parents, you know be frightening because we're unpredictable yelling right. at our kids or and, um, I, and yeah. I have
0: to think that a lot of times we're probably not even aware that we're being perceived as a threat.
1: That's right. And I think that's why it's really important, you know, I remember one time I was I was with my niece and I was on the phone with a customer service person and I was clearly communicating that I was frustrated and she was 3 or 4, you know, they're incredibly perceptive mm-hmm. and amazing and she said "Auntie Tina, you mad?" And you know, that's a moment where if I say, "No, I'm not mad." then she she has sort of only two ways to make sense of that. Either one she doesn't tell me the truth Mm -hmm. or I must not be right when I think an emotion is that like, so then she has Ah. to doubt herself. So much better in that moment. You know, I know times, and this happens particularly when you're in the car with your children. Let me just warn you. There's (laughs) Uh, sometimes these moments, it's harder, you know, you can't get down to eye level and give a hug and all these Mm -hmm. things. So, you know, there, there are times, you know, where we can, you know, emotions run high, you know, Dan has written about this idea of flipping our lids, you know, where we go to kind of more yeah. primitive ways of, of acting out. But in those moments to even be even in those moments when our emotions are running high, we can help our kids feel safer by just naming what's happening. So mm-hmm. I could say I'm mad. You're mad. Your brother's mad. We shouldn't talk to each other right now because we all you know, are not going to handle ourselves in a way we would like. So we're just going to take a few minutes and breathe and calm down. So even them knowing that I'm aware that that's happening can help create that safety. But I think the other thing that can happen is if if households where there's a lot of chaos and fighting, um, there's even a study that shows an infant who is asleep, so not consciously present. If their parents are arguing in the background in, in mm. hostile ways, the baby's level stress hormones are elevated. Oh, wow. So, huh. you know, our, our children mirror and really absorb um, our, our states and what's happening. So a wow. big piece of safety is protecting them from harm, but it's also not being the source of fear. And when we do have those ruptures, like Dan said, to go back and repair yeah. them.
0: And you also say that children need to feel seen. And this sort of gets to something that Daniel was talking about a moment ago, uh, this idea of mind which I think is a, a term that you coined. Uh, what is mindsight? And give us an example of a mind conversation between a parent and a child.
2: Absolutely. Well, mind is a term for me uh, I made up uh, – when I was in medical school, I actually dropped out of school because my professors acted as if their patients and even their students – were just like bags of chemicals (laughs) that they could diagnose disease, but not identify feelings and the meaning of things. So I dropped out of school. And when I was reflecting on, you know, what had happened to me during those first two years of school, I made up this term mindset when I decided to go back, that there were two perceptual systems. One was the system that we see the physical world, like, you know, doing an x-ray on bones, for example, you need your physical sight or eyesight to do that, but if someone has a broken bone and they're an athlete, the emotion of not being able to perform their sport is really significant for that clinician to know about. Mm -hmm. So what is that? What is an emotion? What's meaning? Well, you had to put it somewhere, so I just said, well, it's part of the mind. We call it subjective. (laughs) You know, it's the inner sense of something, the felt texture of life. But even though the word subjective implies, oh, it's not as important as the objective, science has shown it's just the opposite. Relationships, including parent-child relationships, that focus on the subjective felt texture of life of the child in this case, that is, that are seeing the mind, Mm -hmm. mind sight. It's using a different network of perception. So I call it the mind sight network that you can sense what's going on subjectively in another person. So when I went back to school, I studied those professors, and I noticed that the patients who were with physicians who didn't see their mind didn't do as well as the others. Studies later on would show that even if you go with a common cold, and uh, it's a controlled study, but basically one set of doctors are told, just tell the person, you know, drink lots of fluids and call me in the morning, whatever. The others say the same thing, but they take about 30 seconds to say, oh my gosh, this is May and you're a student, yes, this must be so frustrating for you to have a cold, yes, okay, do this, do this, that. The ones who got the empathic comment got over their cold a day sooner, and when you studied their immune response, it was much more robust. What we know is relationships that have mindsight in them, basically, that are involving empathy and compassion, a feeling of what one patient of mine was called feeling felt. Mm -hmm. When you feel that the other person gets you, what Tina and I just use the simple word, sees you, that they know you, that's using your mind-sight circuitry to connect with your child. And the studies are amazing, and I could go through them one by one, but let me just summarize them for you. When parents do that, when they actually reflect to their child, that they're taking in the signals from the child and get a feeling for what the feelings are the thoughts the intentions the meaning the memories for that child and you can do it in the form of questions you don't say i know your mind when you don't you say i wonder if that was scary so here's here's an example a child let's say is three and a half she's running down the street she's so excited that she's got this ball in her hand but she doesn't look and see a stone and she trips over the stone falls now, you have a couple of ways you can respond as a parent. One might be to ignore it and just say, oh, she's three and a half, she can handle it herself. She's screaming and crying and maybe she scraped her knee. You just ignore it because you think, pull herself up by the bootstraps and that's the way she's going to do her right. life. <laughs> Teach her now rather than when she's 30 and still living in a crib or something like that. You know, That's <laughs> one approach. Another approach is get down on the floor and cry your eyes out because your child fell and go, oh my God, oh my God, that was so terrible, so terrible. Oh my God, how can you fall like that? Oh, my sorry, it must hurt so much. <laughs> you know, and you could feel the anxiety of that, right? Okay. So that's over-identifying over yeah. over with your child's pain. <laughs> Another approach is where you differentiate from your child. So you get down to your child's level and go, wow, sweetie, are you okay? That must have been really shocking because you were so excited about the ball. There's the mindset mm-hmm. there you recognize recognizing their excitement that you may have gotten distracted about the stone so you understand where her attention was, again, the mind, and you fell, and that was scary. Now, that's very different from a parent who just attends to their kid and just says, get up,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? So that's another option. You just get to your child. You pull them up and say, get up. Even if it's done nicely, it's still not involving mind dialogue, which mm-hmm. uses what's called mental state language that is, I said, You were excited about the ball. You may have been surprised about the fall. You didn't see the rock because your attention was somewhere else. I'm teaching my child there about how her mind works, that her mind is valuable to know by me and that she herself can learn about the mind for insight for herself. And then she develops empathy and compassion for others. This Hmm. is where social and emotional intelligence are built upon mind sight. And this is something you can teach your child as a parent.
0: Interesting. So, the roots of these qualities like self awareness and resilience, which we think of as sort of, for lack of a better word, inner skills, are more the result of interpersonal interactions than uh, some kind of internal realization. Huh? Yeah. Exactly. Wow.
1: So, well said. You said that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I, I'm curious. The third S is soothe. And I think we kind of talked about that a little bit just now but it's kind of hard. You know, it's very easy for us to get overwhelmed or distracted and to be dismissive of a kid's problems or worse to get just impatient and yeah. angry about them. Do you have some tips for how we can be more soothing and less dismissive or reactionary?
1: Yeah, that's a really hard one to do a lot of times as parents, you know. And, yeah. and and it's very common in our world to have that kind of pull them up by the bootstraps mentality or, you know, we say things to kids all the time like, you know, there's no monsters, there's nothing to be worried about. Or you know, we we kind of dismiss their internal experience. And I think that's been a theme of what we've been talking about this whole time is that the idea of seeing the mind behind the behavior. And, And that gets especially tricky when it's a discipline issue, you know. So, the way that we think about soothed is the idea that we are there to help our child go from a chaotic reactive state mm-hmm. back into an integrated state or back to what we call being regulated, right? And so a lot of times um, there is a fear of parents, you know, and we can do so much fear-based parenting. You know, we think, oh, if we if we let them do this one thing or fight, you know, whatever, you know, our mind easily is like they're going to live in a van down by the river and right. we do all that. But <laughs> the soothing piece is really the yeah. idea of... Of saying I'm here to help you and and when parents actually really fear that when we do that we're coddling them or we're indulging them sure. and and really the opposite is true and because what we know is that what we're doing in soothed is really something we might call co-regulation so your child's mm-hmm. in a really reactive state the parent steps in to help support and help them calm down help them feel good again And when we do that, it actually gives their brain kind of like a rep, like lifting a muscle, right? They're Mm -hmm. getting a rep for going from a dysregulated state back into a regulated state so that they can do that for themselves. So, you know, just a quick example. I I have one of my favorite stories from one of my uh, guys is, you know, my four-year-old throwing a fit about getting out of the bathtub. (laughs) Right. So um, my job in that first and foremost is... To stay regulated myself so that I can, mm-hmm. you know, he he's going to mirror my state. So if I get really reactive and angry, he's going to tantrum more. So I make sure I'm grounded. And then I say it's time to get out and I can either help you out or you can get out by yourself. And so he doesn't get out by himself and he's screaming and yelling and you know so the first thing i want to do is help him feel felt and do that that scene piece so that once i can get clear on what he's experiencing it's going to be easier to soothe him so i can say you're so disappointed bath time's over you really wanted to stay in is that right and as i'm i'm saying that as i'm lifting him out and then i can say you can cry if you need to you can yell if you need to and i'm right here with you while you do it but i think one of the ways to think about this is you know i'm setting the limit I'm still pulling him out of the bathtub, I'm predictable, I'm doing what I said I was gonna do, but I'm seeing his mind, and I'm basically saying, I'm right here with you while you do this. So I'm not fixing it for him, I'm giving him practice sitting in and tolerating a difficult feeling with support. So it's really the essence of sort of saying, you're safe, I'm with you, and we will figure this out together.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me ask you about one thing that I see often, especially with dads, is this tendency to wanna be their child's best friend. Or almost like an uh, like an older sibling more than a parent sometimes, is that healthy and how does that affect a child?
1: Well, I think you know sometimes parents will say that that like they'll say I don't want to I'm not my child's friend I'm their parent. But if you mm-hmm. think about what a lot of it has to do with definitions, you know a friend mm-hmm. is someone you share things with and that you like to spend time with and all of that. Um, you can be those things to your child while still being the adult who is in charge and who is going to protect their child. So I don't think um being an authority figure and being a friend have to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I think what's important is that we want to build relationships. You know, so much of the time when parents use that kind of saying where they say I'm not my child's friend, they're often telling their kid like, I don't want to hear about it. You know, if you're going to cry and throw a fit, go to your room. I don't I don't I don't want to hear about it. Sure. What happens is when we say that repeatedly, our children internalize that mm-hmm. and they're like not only do they not want to hear about when I'm in distress, when I'm falling apart, when things are hard, not only do they not want to hear about it, but they're not going to help me. So it actually can amplify their states of distress because then they go, okay, they don't get me and I'm totally on my own. So I think we can promote if you think about you know, the idea of building relationship where you're sharing your life together and you're delighting and spending time with the other person. To me, those are the two biggest pieces of friendship. I want friendships with my children, but that does not mean that I am not in charge. And I'm not, you know, I Mm -hmm. can still be the authority figure that says, I will protect you. And in fact, you know, when my boys, as they've moved into adolescence, I don't know if you know this, Ben, but (laughs) adolescent children, and particularly my boys, I guess, um, they do some risk taking, you know, they like to experiment (laughs) with the limits of of (laughs) things. And so, you know, there have been times they've made decisions that the way i come in after i've heard heard about something that they've done is to say you made a decision that did not keep yourself safe mm-hmm. and my job is to keep you safe and so i'm stepping in here the parameters are coming in you have you're, you know you're not going to have as much freedom because mm-hmm. i will keep you safe And so that's definitely not a friend thing. (laughs) Right. And that's not a friend thing. That's a parent thing. And so I don't know, Dan, if you have another (laughs) thought about
2: that. No, first of all, you can see why I love working with Tina. (laughs) You are just so fantastic. (laughs) And it's just so so great. You know, um, I would just add on those magnificent things that you said. um, uh, two, Two things to build on what you're saying. One is attachment is the way we turn to someone to be safe, to be seen, to be soothed. And that's really all about attachment. It is true that when you're an adolescent and then in your adulthood, your friends, close friends, can be attachment figures for you. Mm -hmm. So just to name that, um, and that's a beautiful thing. Mentors can be an attachment figure for you. But in friendships or a romantic partner, you are... Looking to be kept safe and to be seen and soothed. Okay, so that's where exactly like you're saying, Tina, you know, attachment and friendship aren't exclusive. The second thing to say, just to build on what you beautifully said, is, you know, parenting requires that we set limits when kids are, in a sense, designed to push against those limits. Mm So the studies are really clear in something called permissive parenting, where no limits are set, it's not good for kids. Mm-hmm. Or the opposite, something called sure. authoritarian, you know, parenting, which is like you're a dictator and you don't ask the questions of your kid or what are they feeling, what are they thinking, to join with them. That's not helpful either. The middle ground, authoritative, where you are an authority figure creating limits is really what I think Tina and I have written about in our other books, too, that we write in The Power of Showing Up, which is this. You're building what you can simply call an internal compass in your child. It's a set of internal skills that, just like you say, Ben, come from interpersonal relationships. And what that relationship is, is from a, your point of view as a parent, is you're a skill builder. You're a, an architect, for sure. You are a neurosculptor where you are helping literally build these networks of an internal compass. What does that mean? Mm. It means, for example, I have a 25-year-old and 30-year-old, and we were all out to dinner with my mom, who's, her, you know, who's 90, and there was this beautiful moment when we were talking about friends and the friends she has and some of them are passing away and what friendships mean to us, and, and you know, one of my kids turns to me and says, Dad, you know, I would consider you one of my friends now. Mm. And it was beautiful. And I don't That's think 13. he or she would have said that, you know, when they were 10, yeah. which is fine because yeah. I was their attachment figure mm-hmm. as a parent. Mm-hmm. And my goal then, not so much now, but then was to say, how can I offer communication that helps build skills for them so that it's a, a an immediate in the moment I'm showing up for them so that I'm being present for them, Right. Yet, in my mind, too, in addition to being there in the present moment, I'm trying to build a skill that's going to change the networks in their brain, this internal compass, so that when they're 25 and 30, as my two kids show, it's just so beautiful to watch, as they're navigating the very complex world that now exists, they have an internal way of governing what are their values, what are their morals, how can they have an internally generated sense of a direction how to take the challenges and have grit so that they stick to it even when things don't go the way they initially hoped they would. And they just try a different way or try harder or whatever they're going to do. And both of them are that way. And I remember when our kids were young, some of our friends would say, why do you talk to your kids so much about how they feel? Just tell them what to do. (laughs) Literally, that was like – we'd get this comment. And and we would say – my wife and I would say – Because we want them to learn about their feelings. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the key thing about feelings. Feelings and meaning are essentially coexistent in the brain. So that the reason you want to tune into your child's emotional life, their feelings, is because if you want to have a meaningful relationship or have your child understand what matters what has meaning so that this internal compass then when all the influencers are from social media are pressing on them or i mean you should hear my kids dialogue about that it's so beautiful because they have this internal compass that says here's the meaning that i'm aware of because you know i've learned this and i'm not going to just be influenced by social media or peer pressure whatever i'm going to have my internal compass guide me and then as a parent when you set them off and i write about this in a book called brainstorm for adolescents you take a deep breath and you go, I've given them the gift of mindsight, so they have the skill of an internal compass and now they've got to make their own way. They, they leave the launching pad that we've provided them and the safe harbor we will always provide for them and they go out in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's the best we can do. You can't guarantee anything, but what Tina and I really hope The Power of Showing Up does is it gives parents these basic ways when you show up and build this internal compass, It's a skill that's a gift that keeps on giving.
0: And I want to end by going back to what you said earlier about how history is not necessarily destiny. You know, so often it's very easy to perpetuate dysfunction by repeating unhealthy patterns that we experience with our parents, with our own children. Uh, How do you break that cycle? How do you rewrite the narrative?
1: Well, I think the thesis of this book comes down to what you just said there, which is that one of the best predictors for how well our kids turn out is that they've had secure attachment with at least one person. Mm -hmm. And the safe, seen, and soothed, providing repeated experiences of those, not perfect experiences, but enough of them, actually wires their brain so that they know to expect that if they have a need, someone will show up for them, mm-hmm. right, and 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 be there for them if they have a need. And what's so cool, so that's the most important thing we can do for our kids' development. Mm-hmm. And what's so cool about the research is that we can say that the best predictor for us being able to provide that kind of secure attachment for our kids, being able to do the, the S's and to show up for them— is not whether or not we had it, Mm -hmm. which is like everybody take a big deep sigh, right? Like, thank goodness. (laughs) But rather, whether or not we have reflected on our experiences and made Mm -hmm. sense of them. In the literature, it's called a coherent narrative. But it's the idea that you look back and you say, gosh, you know, I didn't feel that safe. Or I felt safe, but they didn't see me. They didn't get me at all. And that's that was really hard for me i felt really alone or if i was upset about something i knew not to go to them you know they were they were going to just make me feel worse so when we we reflect on and make sense of those experiences how they impacted us Then our brain actually starts to change to be more integrated where we're not running from our past, but we're also not flooded by or entangled by Mm -hmm. it, but rather we're free. And that's in the literature. It's actually called free and autonomous in adulthood where we're free to look back at our past to make sense of it so that we are not just being… and driven by our past, but rather mm-hmm. we are intentional people who are aware yeah. of those things so that we can make choices. And Dan has a beautiful phrase, which is, without awareness, we don't have a choice. And so we just we just carry on those dysfunctional patterns if we're not aware of them, if we haven't made sense of them. And what's so great about this is that anybody can do this. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, I didn't get that in I have scared my kids a lot or I don't see them. And you're starting to kind of go, goodness, I didn't get that or I'm, I'm not parenting in the way I'd like to be. The research is also hopeful there to say that as we start providing more of these predictable experiences of feeling safe, seen and soothed, our brains change and our children impact mm-hmm. have a positive benefit for that right away.
0: Yeah, and and it's great because most people, if they weren't focused on their children or didn't have children to worry about, they probably wouldn't be doing all this introspection and figuring this out. So uh, it's kind of like the kids are a great excuse to oh, work yeah. on yourself and make your, li- your own life better. They invite us yeah. into that, don't yeah,
1: they?
2: They Wonderful. really do, and it's an opportunity, and it's an amazing thing because some parents, when they first hear about the attachment story that Tina just said, they said, why would I reflect on the past when the past is the past and I can't change it mm. and I have a feeling it was pretty painful so I don't want to do this reflection. When in fact what Tina is saying is so powerful based on the science that you cannot change the past, that's true. You can change how you make sense of how the past impacted you and change the strategies of survival so that you open yourself up and become free now to become the parent and the person that you always dreamed you could be.
0: Great advice. Well, the book is just fantastic. I highly recommend it to people, even if you're not a parent. I mean, all of these skills can be applied to any kind of relationship, uh, romantic relationships, office, co-workers, uh, best friends, you Absolutely. name it. And again, the book is called The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson, thanks for talking with me.
1: Thank, Thank you. you, Ben.
0: Thanks again to Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson for coming on the show. Their new book, The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired, is available on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These high-potency vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. That means no magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide, and zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Try their selection of heart-healthy full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, fresh, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Find these and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.